Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, Sam Bendett with the Center for Naval Analyses with an update on the Ukraine war, and Byron Callen of Capital Alpha Partners with a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. But first, joining us is my dear friend Barbara Rome, one of Israel's most accomplished reporters and analysts, to help us better understand what's next in the wake of the Hamas attack on Israel. Uh, that's left more than 700 Israelis dead, several thousand wounded, more than 100 hostages taken back to Gaza, and of course, uh, hundreds of Palestinians dead now uh, as uh, the Israel Defense Forces have started their intensive operations uh, to root out uh, Hamas, uh, having put uh, the uh, Gaza Strip uh, under siege uh, today. Barbara, thanks so very much uh, for joining us on what is uh, a very tragic day. Yes, indeed it is, Vago, but I'm delighted to talk to you as always. Uh, it's an honor and pleasure having you on. Before we get started, a word from our sponsor. HII is one of the largest artificial intelligence and machine learning federal contractors to the U.S. government. HII delivering the advantage. Uh, Barbara, you know, I think pretty much everybody around the planet at this point knows uh, what uh, happened. Uh, these uh, terrorists attacked uh, Israel from Gaza by air, land, sea. They used rocket barrages. Uh, in unprecedented numbers to try to overwhelm the Iron Dome system. They used unmanned aircraft, uh, the likes of which we have a tendency of seeing uh, other nations, including Israel, uh, use to take out uh, the military capabilities, the unmanned turrets and, and what have you. Uh, they used bulldozers to breach uh, the border paragliders. They fanned out uh, across uh, the country on the, uh, and on the 50th anniversary of the, of the Yom Kippur War. Uh, yes. which was the last time Israel was on, on the receiving end of a surprise attack. Uh, some of the response has been predictable. You know, Israel saying all bets are off. But at the end of the day, uh, the last time there was an Israeli hostage was an Israeli uh, soldier uh, and 1,600 Palestinian prisoners were exchanged after five years of agony, as you've pointed out. Where are we? What's next? And what is this operation likely to meaningfully accomplish? Right. I mean, first, how did we get here and how did Israel miss this? Uh, because that, you know, the Gaza Strip is one of the most surveilled regions in the it's world. But what's next? Uh, stupefying. In, in There's here? no answer. No one can give a clear answer. But this is something that will be studied at West Point, at Sandhurst, not the Israeli uh, the acumen and the superiority and the innovation of the Israeli military but the well-planned, meticulously executed, disciplined way that Hamas, mostly Hamas, not uh, necessarily the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, the, the, the way, like a Bolshoi belay, how it was timed so, um, so meticulously in um, this multi-pronged surprise attack, how they uh, lulled, Israel and Israel allowed itself to be lulled because of the sin of arrogance uh, that we can get to a bit later. But the way that they executed this attack was flawless. The way that they uh, the the um, decoy these two thousand plus rockets they that they launched were just away on the holiday, as you noted, on Sabbath and on Simchat Torah. This is the day when Jews gather in the synagogue and then they go outside and they dance with the Holy Torah. 
So they came and they uh, had this um, uh, deflective operation with the, the rocket attacks, and then they shot out the eyes. They blinded Israel. They blinded. Vago, you have been in those rooms with the female soldiers, the screens that they're monitoring every, practically every inch of this 37 mile long border. At every 300, 400 meters, there's the cameras that you know so well. The system that we've reported on all these years, they, it's called uh, to see and to shoot. Automatic gun turrets deployed, integrated into all the multi-layered sensor systems that Israel, mighty Israel has. They knocked out Israel's vision they surprised Israel. The Air Force was nowhere to be seen. Big, fat targets of D-9 bulldozers uh, just uh, brazing through the, the fence. And what the Hamas probably didn't even count on was the throngs, the, the hundreds of other people not in these disciplined military well-trained units that streamed over the border and were just carousing through the neighboring settlements, shooting at anything that moves. There was a huge uh, music festival, a rave party of young people. You can imagine there was an all night party. I'm sure many of them were not uh, completely sober and they might've thought mistaken at first gunshots as part of the sound system, the, the, the DJ. Right. It was a, a massacre. And Vago, this is something that Israel much more painful, much more, um, much more uh, almost um, it, it, hard to recover from is the fact that civilians, civilians, women, children, civilians were gunned down without mercy in their own homes and on their own kibbutzim and their villages along in Israel proper. This wasn't right. like Yom Kippur where they're fighting uh, combined armies than the Syrians and the Egyptians and the Saudi sent and the, no, this was inside Israel's borders. And to this right now, as we speak, they still, the border is still open and they still have not, they cannot claim that they have cleansed the entire Gaza envelope and all the communities of terrorists. I'm sitting to you, I'm sitting here in Herzliya which is an hour and uh, 15 minutes from the border, uh, safely up north. And there's rumors that there are terrorists that have crept into uh, Tel Aviv and Ramat Gan, the Diamond District, the Financial District, and here in Herzliya where all the diplomatic community lives. It's, uh, it's a colossal failure, a complete collapse of the system, intelligence and uh, strategic the strategic understanding that Hamas is not wanting and not willing and not capable of going for another round. This is not another round. So what is uh, the uh, next steps of this operation? I understand the retribution we must uh, write. I mean, Israel uh, sees uh, this as a little bit of its 9-11 and it's imperative, right? It hits people, as you said, in a different way. The other one was combined nation states that were attacking. Uh, it was soldiers uh, that were responding uh, and dying, you know, whether in the north or in the south when the country was under assault. This was a very personal thing. Terrorists fanning out and shooting people, sadly, on streets, in their cars, in their homes, at uh, festivals. Um, you know, it's uh, Gaza is sealed off. Gaza has spent lots of time sealed off. Um, there is this sense we're going to root them out. 
Um, it is a difficult time also to ask about the policies that got you here and the cynicism of this attack to try to break the deal uh, that obviously the United States was negotiating to try to bring uh, recognition from Israel, from Saudi Arabia, deal with the, you know, a multiple bank shot and deal uh, with, uh, you know, a Palestinian homeland, which is what Arab nations want. Mm -hmm. This is, you know, it's unlikely the Abraham Accords vibrantly succeed after this, given the steps that Israel is likely to take in the wake of this, right? What's, where are we going next? And well, what's the link of some of these policies? I mean, Dov Zakheim is a regular on our show and a mutual dear friend, has been mm -hmm. warning the government really has been ratcheting up tensions in a way that are going to be very hard to control at some point. Yes, indeed. Uh, the, the government, by the way, uh, on the ground, we're more than... Uh, uh, 60 hours into this, the government is still uh, very much AWOL. Uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu made some uh, uh, statement, uh, empty words uh, and using very um, inflammatory language uh, that reflects the messianic fanatic character of his ultra right-wing coalition. He talked about uh, how we were going to, we're going to avenge them and this the, will forcefully avenge this. And he equated Gaza. This is something that is reflective of the, com the makeup of his coalition. He equated Gaza to the wicked city, Sodom and Gomorrah, and that all the places where Hamas is deployed, hiding and operated in that wicked city, we will turn them into rubble. Well, excuse me. This is not the words of a, a leader. These are not calm and calculated and thought out words. This, these are words of an unhinged leader and, an, and a messianic government that did in a way br bring this, no one, could have, no one could have anticipated in their wildest nightmares, the scope of such an action. But the fact that Hamas has chosen to call this operation the Al-Aqsa Storm, that speaks volumes because they are hoping that they will wrest from the Saudis, from the Jordanians, they, that they are the guardians and that they, they are the guardians of the holy Al-Aqsa, which by the way, the Israeli government, Netanyahu's government has been encouraging, allowing and encouraging more than ever before, uh, Jews to go up in, uh, prov in provocations on the Temple Mount, the Haram al-Sharif. There were hundreds right. of them over this past Sukkah holiday. And uh, a lot of people, you mentioned 9-11 and some have said this is Israel's Pearl Harbor. I would venture to say, and this is a very, very loose comparison, but I'd venture to say that this um, may be what the Palestinians would like to be their Tet Offensive. Now, right. obviously, the Tet Offensive uh, was, it, it ended up being a, a catastrophic, catastrophic tactical failure for the North Vietnamese, but the fact that they waged North Vietnam in January of 68, waged this on a holy day, and with the intent of galvanizing support, galvanizing support from the South Vietnamese, here Hamas chose upon, uh, took it upon itself to galvanize the support of the West Bank Palestinians, all the factions. Uh, they are hoping that uh, we were, we're already hearing right now, I'm looking on a silent TV screen that there's a color, the code red alarm sounding in the north with Hassan Nasrallah. 
and most right. of all, hoping to waken the Palestinian citizens of Israel to unite in a joint cause. Because, and I'm, I'm sure they will fail. However, the fact that they were so brazen and so intent on challenging the mighty Israel with all of its air superior, superiority and all of its capabilities, the fact that this even happened uh, speaks volumes that, as I said, will be studied for years to come in the war colleges. Um, let me uh, take you uh, to uh, next steps and where it's likely to take us, right? Where is this, um, right? The prime minister is warned of a very long war. It will be a difficult war. What is achievable here? Because as we found in Iraq and Afghanistan and elsewhere, for each person you kill, you create many right. more people who want to kill you, ultimately. The, you know, it, to say that you're going to bomb Gaza back to the Stone Age, Right. you and I were there many years ago, having gone through the Erez crossing that was be breached uh, at the time. There was a lockdown, uh, and we were the only people eerily going through this gigantic border crossing. Um and, and 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 Gaza is worse today. How does this play out? And how does the Israeli administration need to play this to maintain international support? Right. Uh, Israeli leaders are already warning there will be high Palestinian civilian casualties. We're doing our best to warn. And to a degree, yes, Israel goes above and beyond in terms of trying to give people warning. But at the end of the day, it's two million people packed into a tiny space. What are the things that have to happen for oh. this to be successful and actually achieve mission aims. Because at this point, if you traded 1600 for one mm -hmm. captured soldier, you have 150, including Holocaust survivors, children. Yes. Vaga, first, I, before I, I, we get into that uh, very critical question, I just wanted to mention uh, that the fact that Hamas might have tried to galvanate, galvanize support among the Palestinian citizens of Israel, some 20% of the population, that has not materialized and will not, it's it, it's highly unlikely that it will ever materialize. These Palestinian citizens of Israel are the ones in, in the hospitals caring for the casualties. And they're the ones in the pharmacies supporting, uh, providing medical support and psychological support for the shock uh, that Israel is suffering right now. So I just wanted to make that clear. And right. where do we go from here? Uh, you cannot bomb them into the Stone Age. There's uh, the ground forces, 300,000 uh, or so reserve units have been called up. They're ready at the border. Um, they cannot go house to house. These hostages will be used as human shields. I don't understand um, retired military uh, and, uh, generals and experts, uh, many of whom we know, talking about how we have to reoccupy Gaza and then what? And care for two million people and provide social services and education. And one uh, another thing, yes, the IDF in previous rounds have has taken enormous efforts uh, to the point of... Um, uh, endangering their own force protection to provide early warning. They used to, they had what they called that knock on the door. They would release a very small bomb in a corner of a building to warn right. uh, residents to get out, to evacuate. They would uh, drop leaflets 
in Arabic, telling them uh, that they're about to be this, this is uh, a structure that is housing uh, terrorists and it will be uh, attacked, get out. They're not doing that anymore. They are going mm-hmm. balls to the walls and there, there is no warning. Israel uh, this morning cut off electricity. They're being choked. The only way the prime minister talked about how they have to get out. And uh, he says to the residents of Gaza, leave. Where are they going to leave? Only through the Rafah uh, crossing, which goes into Egypt. And let's see how uh, President al-Sisi is going to uh, uh, handle that uh, only three weeks, I believe, before his uh, before the election in Egypt. So there's nowhere for them to go. And Israel has taken the gloves off. Um, and uh, sadly, uh, despite the very, very welcome words of support from President Biden, and despite the fact that uh, the uh, U.S. has uh, dispatched uh, an, an, a carrier battle group to the Eastern Med, that is that show of force, that that presence, that solidarity is uh, it's it's priceless. It's important uh, operationally. I would venture to say that it will only be used, God forbid, if uh, Iran gets into the mix. Uh, if Israel is overreacting and right. completely um, uh, disproportionate in Gaza. But where do we go from here? I, I think the bottom line is uh, negotiations. Negotiations, uh, prisoner exchange. There's 4,500 4, or so Palestinian prisoners in Israeli jails. They've all along, every single war that I've covered over the past uh, 30 years here in Israel has been uh, in, uh, about prisoner exchange. That's the main thing. They want their prisoners back. Uh, so negotiation, some kind of a negotiated prisoner exchange. And then if any silver lining can be found in this horrible, horrible situation that we're in, and we're only at the beginning, is somehow to revive the legitimacy and the authority of the Palestine Authority. I know they're corrupt. Uh, they, uh, Abu Mazen uh, is uh, well past his shelf life, but Israel's strategy, Israel's policy of either callously ignoring the Palestinians or somehow uh, trying to castrate the Palestine Authority in Ramallah and, and, and almost um, giving encouragement to Hamas, that has to change. Hamas is a terror uh, state. It's a terror right. state within its own borders. If something comes out of this, maybe it will be um, a legitimate and strengthened and, uh, and legitimate, some kind of Palestinian state uh, governed by the Palestine Authority, which, by the way, continues phenomenal security cooperation every right. single day with Israel, despite the provocations. And um, that's that would be in a, in a sane world, but we're not in a sane world. And I fear that the next um, weeks will, um, will just be carnage and it will get Israel nowhere. And all of those poor hostages, those beautiful young people and women and small children and old people that were taken, civilian, never before, never before right. have Israeli civilians been in such harm. That was the whole whole argument of allowing women in combat for all those years because Israel couldn't even think, couldn't even stomach the thought that a female um, professional uh, soldier would be taken into, um, into the 
uh, Chevy, I've forgotten my word, uh, uh, as, a, as a hostage in enemy territory. So um, I don't know what to answer you, Vago, but I hope that the answer uh, where we go from here could somehow emerge renewed prospects for a real two-state solution with a responsible authority that, by the way, has never um, yet uh, disavowed their um, commitment to nonviolent resistance. The the, the one, uh, yeah, they're not, they have not taken up arms. The right. PA as a, a governing authority is still committed to nonviolent resistance. Um, which all of which uh, does get systemically harder, uh, obviously, as Netanyahu right does more settlements in the West Bank and complicates the entire uh, with with more housing units, which unfortunately is is yes. the the drive. And we've seen some unfortunate settler actions where the government has not, um, and uh, other actions that the government hasn't uh, cracked down on. We, we've got less than a minute left. Um, I want to get your sense on what Israel needs uh, from the United States. Obviously, the president making available uh, assistance. Uh, obviously, an aircraft carrier uh, is uh, en route. But what are the things Israel needs? Because its arsenal is very deep, very wide, and very targeted for this kind of mission, right? The IDF is structured to do what it is doing in uh, Gaza. What, Israel what could is use it? a lot more Iron Dome. It interceptors. I don't know how you turn up that spigot. There's a production. There's co-production. I don't know how you can um, uh, speed up that that process. But they need a lot more uh, Iron Dome dome interceptors. They need precision guided munitions. Um, but most of all, they need the continued political and um, and moral backing of the United States. And I hope that they will be worthy of this continued backing. Barbara, always an honor and pleasure having you on the program. We look forward to turning to you for some thoughtful uh, analysis uh, in uh, the days, weeks, and months uh, to come. Thanks very much. All the best to you and yours. Uh, and uh, we hope for the best outcome uh, for uh, Israelis and all others involved. It's a terrible situation because on both sides, people have been thrust into this, um, you know, in in ways uh, that, that no person should be forced yes, to yes. deal with. Okay, Vago, till next time. And joining us now is Sam Bendet, part of the Crack Russia team at the Center for Naval Analyses. He's also a fellow with the Center for a New American Security. He's one of the world's leading experts uh, on the Russian military, as well as its unmanned systems and worldwide unmanned systems uh, and military capabilities. Sam, uh, welcome back to the program. It wouldn't be Monday without you. Thanks so much, Vago. Uh, obviously, uh, the world's attention has been drawn to uh, events uh, in Israel, Hamas's unprecedented attacks across Israel that's left uh, hundreds dead, hostages uh, taken. Uh, and so all of a sudden, everybody has a tendency of forgetting about really the other big war that's been going on for 18 months, uh, Ukraine's uh, Russia's war on, on Ukraine. Bring us very quickly up to speed on the latest in the last week of what's been going on, right? Because of the American speaker battle and all of this, there's been a diminution of sort of uh, attention and a lot of concern that the U.S. funding for Ukraine might be on thin ice, especially if we have a new speaker uh, that is uh, anti-Ukraine. Uh, Jim Jordan, uh, one of the contenders, has already made that clear that he is going to oppose Ukraine aid. Walk us through where we are and how some of these messages are being received, being received in Kiev, but also being received in Moscow. Well, there's still uh, a Ukrainian offensive going on. Uh, it's slow, it's grinding away, but uh, Ukrainians are still taking 
Russian territory bit by bit. They're still heavy fighting. Uh, it's still very much positional, so there haven't necessarily been a lot of breakthroughs um, on the front. There have been, of course, uh, very um, consequential missile attacks. Uh, Russia struck civilian targets and killed a lot of um, a lot of innocent people. Uh, but at the front, there isn't much of a change, except that Ukraine actually continues to very slowly and very methodically grind away at the Russians. Um, both sides are enabling their operations with all kinds of intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance mechanisms, missiles and rockets. And of course, uh, tactical drones are playing a very important role. Uh, but um, in Ukraine, of course, there's a lot of concern about what's happening with the U.S. political establishment and the messages that are sent from the U.S. political establishment to the voters, especially by those who may or necessarily may not be speakers uh, of the House. Um, and so in Ukraine, there's a lot of concern. In Russia, I, I think the attitude is more along the lines of kind of letting this all play out and waiting out um, both the U.S. elections as well as the um, as well as the aid to Ukraine. Uh, recently, Vladimir Putin spoke at the Valdai Club. That's the annual gathering of foreign policy experts and specialists and academics, both from Russia and from all over the world. Before the war, there was actually uh, Western assistant, uh, excuse me, um, Western attendance and American attendance at the Valdai Club. Now, of course, um, it's mostly those uh, who support uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And so at the Valdai Club, uh, Russian president delivered several key messages. One of the more important ones was uh, he was goaded on by um, academic by the last name of Karaganov on the use of nuclear weapons um, um, simply because a lot of people in Russia think it's high time for Russia to use nuclear weapons to bring an end to the war and to force the issue. And Putin very carefully walked back that assertion saying he's not changing the Russian nuclear doctrine and it's not time um, to use nuclear weapons in any conflict that Russia is involved in. Uh, so the message to Ukraine is that um, Russia will continue sort of to um, to do what it's doing right now, to grind away at the Ukrainians, to wait them out, to uh, essentially force U Ukrainians to spend their human and material resources on this war, resources which are starting to get sort of in, in shorter supply, even with additional um, messages that aid may be forthcoming from countries like Sweden and uh, other nations. After all, um, what Russia wants is basically to wait this out um, until U.S. hits the election. And uh, whatever political discourse happens in the United States, uh, I think Russian president and his government think that uh, the discourse will uh, distract away from direct assistance to Ukraine. Of course, all of this is of concern to Kiev. Um, let me take you uh, to the question of how this new war uh, is being seen by uh, those uh, fighting uh, the other uh, big war, specifically uh, what some of the lessons the Russians uh, are drawing and the Ukrainians are drawing by watching uh, the capabilities that Hamas uh, has been using. It's simply unprecedented. Uh, Hamas has been using uh, all manner of uh, drones, uh, you know, whether to drop weapons, deposit weapons, uh, whether they're kamikaze drones. Drones, paragliders were used to penetrate deeper into Israel and, and sort of evade radar uh, defenses. A lot of questions about his, how Israel missed uh, the intelligence to this, right? Just after uh, Yom Kippur, there was a similar panel to sort of understand what it is, you know, how Israel was caught flat-footed. 
What are some of the lessons the Russians and the Ukrainians and you are drawing as this operation gets started? Because one of the things the Israelis have used uh, occasionally is mass, uh, right? Um, right? Walk us through what are some of the key lessons people are drawing and you're drawing from this. So watching some of the very carefully worded and calibrated messages on Russian telegram channels, the same channels that report about the war in Ukraine. Uh, there's a lot of commentary about the dangers of Israeli forces massing their soldiers, weapons and equipment for uh, counterattacks against Hamas, especially when they attack in groups as they clear out cities and, um, and settlements, and especially as uh, there are photographs of their military equipment sort of massed together in a single space together with ammunition. And so a lot of Russian commentators are saying that this type of massed groupings just invites attacks from quadcopters and FPV drones or makes it just easier for Hamas to use commercial quadcopters to observe Israelis and Israeli action. Of course, a lot of these messages, again, are very carefully sanitized and very carefully calibrated. Uh, I think a lot of Russians are also very shocked at what happened um, and uh, why Israeli intelligence and the military did not react adequately to the Hamas penetration. But uh, these are sort of some of the initial lessons that the Russians are observing. Also, uh, those very few videos of quadcopters dropping grenades on top of Israeli soldiers and on top of a tank, a lot of Russians are saying that lessons learned from this war are difficult to adapt, not just by militaries that are fighting this war, including Russia's own military, but even some of the more advanced militaries like Israel, uh, and I mean the war in Ukraine, where quadcopters and civilian uh, UAVs have played such an important part in both tracking and destroying a lot of manpower and personnel. And so I think going you know, um, going further, lessons learned from this war once it concludes would be what role did small commercial technologies play in it? Uh, at the same time, Hamas is also displaying a much more sophisticated UAV capability, the capability that was known um, to Israel and to the international community. Hamas um, actually built and flew multiple types of UAVs with assistance uh, from Iran and other and other countries. And so right now there are videos on Telegram and other channels about uh, Hamas using their own loitering kamikaze type drones against uh, Israeli IDF positions. And these are fairly sophisticated UAVs. They look to have a very significant range, probably anywhere between 100 to 200 kilometers. Um, and these uh, drones are launched from um, inside buildings and basically from cover. So they're not launched in the open spaces where they could be observed by Israeli UAVs, but they're launched from, from fairly significant urban cover. Uh, one of the lessons that is also hard learned both by the Russians and the Ukrainians because they're switching to using their FPV drones with operators hidden inside buildings, for example, or basements. Right. Uh, so there's a lot of sophisticated capability displayed by Hamas, a capability, again, that was fairly known and fairly public to Israel. So um, obviously, uh, in any type of sort of after-action report, um, there will be a lot about what kind of ISR capabilities both sides had in this war and what were the gaps exploited by each side, and especially by Hamas when it comes to using intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance and other related assets like drones and, and, and kamikaze munitions.
uh, it would uh, it's uh, it's interesting given the role that uh, some of these Israeli systems played in Armenia against its mass formations. Right, how that lesson right. is sort of being turned around on its head at the time. Uh, you know, you were noting uh, what a uh, watershed moment it was uh, in in history and and the implications for mass uh, forces at the hands of very sophisticated kamikaze drones. Walk us through very briefly. We're uh, very short on time. We've got about thirty seconds. But Iran's uh, role in this, uh, Iran has become an armorer to the Russians. It's an armorer ex- uh, elsewhere in the world. The Shahed is a pretty capable system, even though it's very inexpensive, uh, good enough for the Russians to adopt as well as build a factory to mass produce. What's the Iranian role in these uh, kind of capabilities? Or are these such that actually any nation or group that's interested in capitalizing on this technology can do so without really the help? You know, we're always looking for the villain. Is, is there necessarily a villain or is this actually far easier to do whether out of cardboard or with 3D printers or just ordering them online? So I think it's a very important point. Obviously, a lot of initial technologies, initial blueprints, initial examples do come from Iran. And Iran has been fairly active in publicizing its drone capabilities. It's offering drones for exports. It was bragging recently that over two dozen countries are lining up to get Iranian military drones, including loitering munitions. Um, But the question is, how much do other countries then or other forces rely on this initial Iranian technology assistance? Probably uh, to a significant extent in the beginning. But a lot of Iranian drones, for example, are based on civilian technologies and civilian components, as has been demonstrated by numerous uh, research reports. And so even countries um, which have militaries um, that are constantly involved in uh, combat and warfare and civil war, like the Houthis in Yemen, have demonstrated that they can take initial Iranian technology and build on it uh, or build probably something with Iranian assistance, but build something of their own. And so a lot of, uh, a lot of drones that, for example, Houthis launched against Saudi Arabia are actually of their own making with initial Iranian blueprints. Russia, for example, is now moving on to manufacture a domestic version of the of the uh, loading munitions that Iranians have provided last year. And so uh, Hamas was probably provided with Iranian assistance, Iranian technologies, and Iranian know-how, but then built on it because this technology is spreading. A lot of it is commercial-based, and the experience of building and operating these drones is spreading and proliferating as well. So for some sophisticated non-state actors like the Hamas and the Hezbollah, uh, they no longer have to rely on uh, donations and um, uh, essentially uh, technologies given by countries like Iran. They can actually build something of their own with using initial Iranian blueprints and initial Iranian technologies. And this goes obviously for more sophisticated drones like the ones I mentioned earlier, but this also goes for a very large amount of different types of commercial drones, which, for example, are used in the war in Ukraine by both sides and which are now getting used by uh, forces in Sudan and elsewhere, that it no longer requires a lot of sophistication to design, build and fly certain types of drones, which could be quite consequential in combat, like FPV drones, which have a short range or long-range kamikaze drones, which can be built from existing parts components and with the existing public expertise. Sam, always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks very much for joining us and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so much. Thanks so much. 
And as it's Monday, joining us is my good friend Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners with a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. Byron, honor and pleasure having you back on. Always a pleasure, Bago. Uh, absolutely action-packed weekend. Obviously, the tragic uh, events uh, in Israel. Uh, another terrific note on your part. Uh, talk to us about your concerns in the wake of uh, the ejection of that of House Speaker McCarthy. The challenges between the House and the Senate when it comes to the defense budget and how dark the picture might be. Well, there are a couple of things, Vago, and I mean there are really three things that, that I want to talk about in the limited time we've got. I think the first, as you mentioned, is you know one one focal point this week is going to be who might be. Uh, elected as the next Speaker of the House. Uh, there are some scenarios we could walk through on that. I wrote about it in my note. I think if it's Jim Jordan, I would look at that as a negative for defense because I just think you're talking about gridlock on steroids um, and you know an entrenchment in partisan positions that's just not going to see a compromise. I in, in that scenario, I really do think you're looking at a um, a budget outcome where you won't be able to change the Fiscal Responsibility Act and DOD will get funded at 99% of the FY23 level. And the outlook for Ukraine aid is going to be even uh, dimmer or grimmer uh, in my view. Um, let's go uh, to an issue of entropy. You and a number of other friends have been talking about us uh, going into an entropic world. Uh, give us your case because you wrote about that uh, in your note as well. Yeah, and and the, the notion of entropy is really just kind of decay, um, slow decay, slow weakening. You know, I, I guess what really triggered that thought was seeing w- really the crickets uh <laughs> that have been chirping away, um, you know, meaning there really hasn't had any, been anything that's happened after Azerbaijan uh, launched a military action on September 19th that basically resulted in the ejection of 100,000 Armenians from Karabakh. And I just find that lack of action, um, you know, any condemnation, any penalties being imposed on Azerbaijan for use of military force to change a border which really is one of the notions that's at work here in, uh, you know, why are people so upset about what Russia's done with Ukraine? Well, you're not supposed to use military force to change borders. So, um, you know, let alone eject people who've been living in a place for for, for generations. So um, entropy, you know, arguably it's good for defense long-term, but I think there are going to be nuances to that, you know, if there is going to be more use of military force to settle scores, to you know, settle uh, ethnic differences, uh, claim tor- territory uh, that may not necessarily be your own, um, that's going to create uh, <laughs> defense demand. But it's not going to be uniform. And I think as we've seen, or as we are seeing in our own country, and some of the pushback um, in in Congress and some of the population from aiding Ukraine. Uh, it, it's not always going to be a you know a, a super highway to higher defense spending. It's going to be nuanced. But this notion of entropy, I think, is just something people ought to be thinking about as they frame their outlook for defense over the balance of the decade. Uh, I think it also uh, location helps. Uh, having Russia and Turkey backing you helps, and also being a major oil and gas producer helps you as well in that instance. Uh, unfortunately, um, let me uh, take you to the events in Israel. We heard from Barbara as well as uh, from Sam. And as we convene, uh, you know, as people are listening to this, AUSA uh, will be well underway on its first day. 
walk us through uh, some of the takeaways there from this conflict that you think are applicable and folks should bear in mind. The, the, the ones that I wrote about Vago, uh, since it is a USA, the important of ground forces, you know, um, we, we go through these periods from time to time where they're seen as bill payers for naval and aerospace forces. Um, once again, I think that that ought to be questioned. Um, urban combat, you know, are we prepared for this? Is Taiwan prepared for this? Um, we don't really know the what caused uh, the seeming surprise if if this was an intelligence failure. Um, it, it certainly was a human intelligence failure if that's the case that Israel misjudged what Hamas was capable of doing. Um, there are going to be a lot of lessons learned. I, right now, today, don't think this is going to be resulting in a sea change in defense spending expectations, but this war could go in all sorts of different directions. And it's clearly got to be something that people need to think through and what some of those outcomes and scenarios could be. And uh, it's uh, always interesting getting your take on what the audience should be uh, paying uh, attention to. What should they be paying attention to over the coming week? Well, obviously, the war is going to generate a, a series of pop-up events. The war between Israel and, and Hamas is going to generate a series of pop-up events. I think Middle East Institute had announced one on October 10th. There should be more. Um, I'll be at AUSA, um, CSIS, and the Mitchell Institute are both doing some interesting events on space and intelligence gathering. And uh, General Flynn, uh, U.S. Army Indo-PACOM commander, is uh, speaking at CSIS later this week as well. And I should commend to folks uh, to uh, check out coverage of the aerospace uh, event uh, put on, uh, organized by Joanna, uh, the great Joanna Speed. Uh, and uh, some of the speakers uh, in that are going to be our very own Dr. Rocket Ron uh, Epstein, uh, Todd Harrison of uh, Matreya, uh, Pierre Chow of Proteus, and a number of other uh, mutual friends who are going to be speaking, including yours truly, who's going to be moderating a panel uh, discussion. Byron, thanks very much. Really appreciate it and look forward to having you back on again next week. See you at AUSA. Thank you, Vago.